Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. Check out our new newsletter at chinaecontalk.substack.com for a weekly deep dive into the Chinese TMT space. This week we're talking about the Tencent ByteDance battle of messaging apps. How did the U.S.-China economic relationship evolve over the Obama administration? Are the economic tensions we see today between the U.S. and China a product of inevitable forces or more contingent factors? And what to make of today's cold tech war? To discuss these topics and more, we have on today's show Obama administration senior official Caroline Atkinson. Caroline served as President Barack Obama's deputy national security advisor for international economics, aka your host's dream job. As the president's senior international economics advisor, Caroline supported Obama at major international economic summits and coordinated the policymaking process for international economic affairs. During her tenure, she was the U.S. Sherpa for the G7 and G20 summits and helped drive global agreement on a diverse set of issues, including global trade, employment, climate change, and the response to the Ebola crisis. So after leaving government, she worked at Google as the head of global public policy. Caroline, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thanks, Jordan. Hi. So back in the White House, how much of your bandwidth was filled with China-related issues? Jordan, that really depended on what was happening in the world and whether there were meetings, especially at leader level, planned, or whether I was going to Beijing to plan for other meetings. So. Some people in the White House、mm -hmm. were always thinking about and working on China, the Asia specialists, the China specialists. But my re remit was all economics everywhere. So, for example, during the Euro crisis,、uh, that took up a lot of my bandwidth. Although I have to say that even then, I kept in regular contact with Chinese counterparts because they also cared about what was happening in Europe and often wanted to. Talk to、uh, talk to me and others in in the U.S. government about how stable the international financial system was. So, if you could generalize a bit, I'm curious if you could compare working with your Chinese counterparts as opposed to other members of the G7 and G20. Well, it was often more formal. And slightly depends how long. In these relationships, you know, diplomacy and personal relationships do matter. So, there are some people that we got to know pretty well, and we might, you know, meet for coffee or breakfast when they were in town, and go out for a less formal meal when we were in Beijing. But when I say we, I mean me and my. Team in the White House, which included a Chinese speaker and American who'd been born in Hong Kong, and others who were China experts. Some of the with Liu He, who whom I met several times, who's now chief negotiator on economic and trade issues for China with the United States. We had substantive meetings, substantive discussions about economics, with more formal meetings. With Wang Yi and other senior officials, often almost the point of the meeting was to exchange talking points and send signals by what was mentioned and what was not mentioned. You know, if I was going to Beijing ahead of a state visit or ahead of an, a visit by President Obama, and I was discussing the economic issues, I might mention four topics or five topics, and. That was sending a signal that those were the issues that were important at this time for the for the American side for President Obama, and then they 
might send signals back that way. Uh, for example, China hosted the APEC meetings in uh 2014, and that was also a very important time in the climate discussions, which were being led by John Podesta. And typically, the Americans at that time would meet with other potential partners in the Trans-Pacific Partnership TPP trade agreement, which did not include China. And there was an issue about whether China would object to us holding this meeting that excluded them in their country. And in early meetings to discuss the mechanics and logistics of, of President Obama's trip, the Chinese side brought this issue up a lot and said it would be very difficult and so on and so on. And they objected on logistical grounds. And then towards the end of our pre-discussions, that topic got dropped, which was, I thought, a signal that you know they were resigned to that meeting going ahead. So... My interactions were sometimes very frank, but other times more a, a signaling of what was underlying issues. So I guess the general takeaway is, I mean, you're, you're describing by means of comparison, right, where um, maybe there would be more social interaction with different countries and it was a sort of less formal, stilted way of doing economic diplomacy. Is that, is that fair to characterize? Yeah. And also, the, we, I had social interactions with some of the Chinese team. So there would always be, uh, you know, less formal meetings amongst those in China whom we knew better. And then mm -hmm. with other countries, again, it would depend if you'd had a counterpart that had been around for a long time or who was very close to their leader. So it was, you know, in that sense, very powerful inside their system. Then that would be somebody that, that you got to know better. Sure. So a relatively low fun factor um, <laughs> from the, the Chinese economic diplomats. You know, I'm a, I'm a nerd, so I loved it. <laughs> You know, there's been a big debate within the Chinese government over the past uh, six months or a year or so on how they got the U.S. so wrong and kind of didn't see Trump coming and didn't really understand the clouds and the storm on the horizon. But I'm curious if from your understanding, how you would compare their understanding of U.S. policy and the democratic process, other countries you interacted with. I think they were pretty good at it, actually, because again, they were very serious. They studied, you know, some countries didn't have time to worry about time or bandwidth themselves to worry about the mechanics or, or the policy constraints for the United States. Obviously, every country and every other Sherpa, the United States was the 800 pound gorilla in the room. So they did want to know what we were doing, but it was sometimes a bit baffling to explain for example, why we were so keen on the importance of the international financial institutions, including the International Monetary Fund, but yet our Congress had not passed the funding that we had pushed for in 2009 <laughs> uh, by 2014. And, and you know, there was, you could tell that sometimes uh, other countries just thought, well, surely if if they, i.e. the administration, really wanted that to happen, they'd make it happen. But the Chinese were pretty serious, always had serious people as ambassadors. They knew a lot of the constraints. On the issue of getting the U.S. wrong, I mean, many people, obviously inside the United States, but also in very close allies, uh, the United Kingdom, 
Germany, Japan, I think that uh, there has been a considerable amount of bafflement about President Trump. First of all, surprise that he that he did become president, and secondly, just confusion and uncertainty about what to expect from him, including in the economic realm. So I don't think sure. that China is is an outlier on that one. I think what's happening in both countries, well, you would know more than I about what's happening inside China, but certainly inside the United States, there is also some revisionism about, well, was China always going to be more of a competitor and less of a cooperative uh, partner in the economic space? And did previous administrations, including the Obama administration, uh, sort of underestimate how much of how much competition was inevitable between the two countries. So there's there's more of a debate about that uh, today now. Sure. So let's come to that topic and first, kind of going back to the initial. Um, maybe let's start at Sunnylands uh, and like a moment of optimism for uh, you know these two the new Xi leadership and Obama's second term and a lot of kind of positive momentum it came to the U.S.-China relationship. If you wouldn't mind characterizing where you think the uh, the economic and trade relationship stood at that point, I mean we had a U.S.-China bit discussion for a bilateral investment treaty, which is sort of hard to contemplate in today's climate. But uh, there was talk of even liberalizing uh, Chinese investment into the U.S. So what were the kind of hopes and dreams for the Obama administration when it came to China at that point in time? And how did they evolve, evolve over the succeeding years? OK, well, you're right that it was a very deliberate move, the Sunnyland on the part of the United States, the Sunnyland's proposed meeting in an attempt to really deepen uh, relationships with China, but not just to be just friendly in order to get genuine achievements. And some of those, which I was less involved in, were on the security side. There was a sort of drumbeat from the United States about the importance of reducing cybersecurity attacks and understand, and in particular in the commercial space. And there was also President Obama really want, really did believe that on the economic side, a strong and stable and prosperous and growing China was in the interests of the United States as well as in the interests of China. He believed that, and we all believe that China's integrated and integral to the strength of the world economy, and that having China's buy-in, if you like, as a stakeholder, seeing itself clearly as a stakeholder in a well-functioning global economy was going to support U.S. interests as well as Chinese interests. Now, at that early on in the Obama administration, a big economic issue with China was on the exchange rate because China was pursuing a very undervalued exchange rate. They had very unbalanced trade overall, not just this bilateral trade deficit, but they had a big current account surplus. They were sort of exporting to the rest of the world much more than they were importing. And a lot of the economic focus in the discussions was about shifting that exchange rate policy, which by and large occurred during the first 
Obama administration and that situate that the importance of that issue in the economic dialogue became much less. And then the focus shifted more to climate, which we can talk more about, which was incredibly important. President Obama's second term, he really made a big push to have the National Climate Action Plan and getting China on board with that was a huge issue. And sorry, I just want to comment quickly on on the bit, the bilateral investment treaty. Of course, a big part of that was to try to open up China to US investment. That was the key uh, from the, for the United States side. And there was a feeling that we were that the United States was already quite open to Chinese investment at the time. As you say, a little different environment from now. But the key for the bilateral investment, most of the discussions focused on how to open up China to U.S. competition and U.S. investment. So interestingly, when it comes to sticks, there's a lot that the Trump administration has been doing that Obama and the trade folks in the White House thought was sort of beyond the pale. I mean, there's a lot of fun that you uh, you folks could have had with the sort of 301 cases that Trump and Lighthizer are really um, are really you know stretching to the, their limits right now. I'm curious, what was the sort of philosophy when it came to coloring within the lines with regards to U.S trade laws and uh, WTO enforcement mechanisms and how that played out in the China context in particular. The administration was always keen to color within the lines, as you said, because that's part of the bargain, if you like, or, or part of being a stakeholder in the international system implies being constrained also by those rules. Now, there may be times when the United States it behaves in a less constrained manner than some of the others. But the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, all of these, membership in all of these institutions, and on the security side, of course, very importantly, it's quite explicit that the United States is also signing up to some constraints. And as Mike Froman, who was my predecessor as Sherpa and then was the trade minister or the U.S. trade representative, the Lighthizer position, was very firm about enforcement. And we did a lot of work to strengthen enforcement, working across the administration with commerce, USTR, etc. But we were also very keen to make sure that if we used WTO enforcement uh, rules or U.S. bilateral ones that these would hold, that we would have cases that we would win and that we would be seen by others and, and clearly would be obeying all of the trade rules, uh, because we wanted others to do that as well. Let's now turn to uh, the TPP, which was Obama's premier trade deal. And um, one of the first things that Trump came into office and canceled on his first day, I think. Um, So outwardly, the message when the administration talked about the TPP was that, oh, no, we're not doing this to box in China. This is all about uh, creating high standards and making a real, um, you know, a real uh, 21st century trade deal with all this good stuff like labor laws and intellectual property rights and uh, environmental protections and what have you. I'm curious, though, how much internally did China factor into the overall thinking and push uh, with, with regards to TPP? So I think there are two different ways to come at that. One is that the point of TPP was to lay down, as you said, a 21st century trade agreement and 
you know, the importance of the agreement was in the agreement itself. And in particular, you know, many people thought this was a way to bring Japan and the United States both into a trade agreement with a bunch of other countries, but that that was a very big uh, and important element of the trade part of that deal. So in that sense, China wasn't a part of the thinking. However, in another sense, it really was because quite often and quite explicitly actually in speeches and so on, there would be the TPP was sold and seen as a way to get more buy-in for the open rules and, and the higher standards on labor and environment and so on that were important to the United States. And the more successful that the negotiations were in bringing together a bunch of, if you like, like-minded countries, but including Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, some countries that were not part of the traditional Western democracies, if you like, bringing together some other countries in Asia would be very important to lay out and bring in these countries into the rules-based system that the United States supported. And there was then quite an explicit you know, thing that, that otherwise, if this didn't, if this wasn't, especially domestically in the United States, uh, part of the sell to Congress was do this, otherwise you will find that China is the one whose rules are the ones that are being taken on by many other countries. I'm curious for your general take on the trend line of the U.S.-China relationship by the end of the Obama administration. It seems like you were handing off the relationship to the succeeding president on a pretty high note. I mean, we just had the Paris Accords and this big U.S.-China climate trade deal. But basically, the argument today, which is almost universally accepted in the kind of American-China watching community, is that China was treated by the U.S. for far too long you know, with kid gloves, and it had all these benefits of WTO market economy status without respecting intellectual property, continuing to subsidize domestic production, etc. I guess the, the, the great hypothetical then is if the Obama administration was sort of too soft for so long and had the president in the White House known that she would have changed the constitution to stay in power indefinitely, created camps in Xinjiang, be willing to you know kidnap Canadian academics, that the administration in retrospect should have brought a different mindset and a different framework for the US-China relationship. So I'm just curious if you think there's a universe where this sort of, uh, you know, Sunnylands mindset you um, you spoke about earlier would continue and would have ended up succeeding or had um, not necessarily Trump, but a Hillary or a Jeb or a Rubio, a one in 2016, we'd be looking at a different U.S.-China relationship, uh, you know, as we start 2019 when we're recording this conversation. Well, you know, hypotheticals always uh, best avoided. But I'll make a couple of remarks. First of all, the stakes for the United States and China getting along are very high. We will have a much better world if the United States – China is very integrated into the global economy. As I said, the, the, if China is slowing down now, that is hurting the United States. It's hurting, we've seen with Apple, and there are other important – U.S. companies, U.S. workers who are engaged in trade and so on with China. China is a huge market for U.S. firms, so and they have a big impact 
on the general, on the overall economic growth. I mean, China's growing rapidly. They import more from Latin America. Latin America then wants to import more from the United States or they import more from China. So China doing well economically is basically good for the United States. Now, of course, if they do well by subsidizing particular production that then hurts uh, workers in the United States and business in the United States, that is something that needs to be dealt with very seriously. That was always something that was on the top of the agenda in Chinese economic discussions. Then there were other elements. You mentioned climate. It was hugely important for the world and for the United States and for China that there should be an accommodation on climate where China kind of accepted that they needed also to be a part of a global accord. And their support with the United States made a tremendous difference to being able to win support from India, another big emitter, and then others, Brazil, Indonesia, that are also major emitters. Now, we're in a different world now, but I still think that laying down those elements was important. On the security side, again, that's not what I know so much about, but on cybersecurity, we had a very, the Obama administration had a very serious set of conversations with China and obtained Chinese agreement for reducing or stopping uh, cyber espionage for commercial reasons, which we then uh, flipped into being G20 language. Now, all of these things can be ignored. I think that if you have a better or worse relationship, it can make a difference about whether they are ignored. I do think that any US administration would have had to respond to the shifts from within China uh, that you mentioned, Xi's declaration of uh, you know ending the term limits or effective term limits and being more aggressive, which was beginning already, being more aggressive in the South and East China Seas, as well as these human rights issues and the protection of internet intellectual property. All of these issues are ones where any administration would need and should be working hard. And it's possible. I, I think the WTO issues and China issues were actually way back, like the relative softness that occurred uh, way back pre-Obama administration in the Bush era when China first became part of the WTO. And maybe the terms on which it did that were too generous to China. But I guess that I feel that in the long run, all of us would be better off if we can find a way to work together. That may not be realistic if you have a Chinese leadership that doesn't want to do that, but I think it's worth playing for that. And it's it's hard to know what would have happened. Hillary was quite hawkish towards China in her campaign. So maybe she would have come in and, you know, worked to lay down a tougher law, especially on trade and economics, uh, intellectual property rights. You also need, quite frankly, to have companies, U.S. companies, caring about those issues. We were often a little frustrated that major companies would complain about having, about Chinese treatment of them inside China, but they would be, they would fate any Chinese leader and, you know, fawn almost over them because they didn't, they wanted to preserve their access to the market. So it may be that there's a bit of a shift 
on the part of U.S. businesses now as well to argue for a tougher line. So coming off that discussion, I'd love to hear um, you know, your take on uh, Trump and his impact on global norms. And as someone you know, who was going to these uh, G7 and G20 meetings, part of the, the exercise, as well as the, the broader exercise of a lot of these international organizations is sort of, as you talked about um, at the beginning of this conversation, you know, building those personal relationships, making sure people feel like they know who to call and know who to talk to, and that these organizations, which have helped play a role in uh, you know, sustaining uh, global peace since 1945 have um, have a real place at the table. So, you know, Trump over the past few years has has talked about abolishing NATO, saying that the WTO is irrelevant, saying that the uh, treaty between the U.S. and South Korea and the, the treaty with the U.S. and Japan is is just not important. Um, so, I'm curious. I'm sure you think that these things uh, matter, but I'm curious how lasting you think this potential damage could be. You know, just yesterday we had uh, some intelligence officials come up to the White House saying that this is having a real impact abroad. But I'm curious for your personal take on what what a president speaking in this sort of way about these institutions does, you know, at the at the working level and then for global norms more generally. I think it's very serious. As I mentioned earlier, if you like bargain uh, that the United States struck with the rest of the world was, yes, we're going to have a big say in these global norms, but we're also going to be constrained by them ourselves. And we consider our country as being a stakeholder in the international institutions that lay down norms so that it's a bit like, do you have a rules-based system domestically? Do you have a rules-based system internationally? Obviously, internationally, you don't have legislative programs, but you have political commitments that leaders make to each other and that are carried out at at different levels. And I think that, strangely, we're at a time internationally where having strong support for these norms from the United States is even more important than usually, because these norms are being challenged. And it's important to and, and you need to be flexible. I mean, many of these institutions have been going since the 1940s. They have actually changed and evolved over time. But the one thing that has not changed was the belief, or had not changed, was the belief that international cooperation left everybody better off. I still believe that's the case. But if you have the world's, still the world's, superpower, biggest economy, by far the biggest uh, military power, uh, flouting this idea, then I think that endangers the continuance of these norms. And it makes everybody else wonder, well, why should I do it? And, And a lot of the ways that countries behave towards each other and towards each other's citizens are determined not so much by there's an underlying legal system, but there's also just an exchange of understandings. And if you start to break those down, I think it can become very dangerous and certainly a chill on ordinary people traveling, like you yourself being in China. Me, I I was just there recently or traveling in other places. And I think that the United States has a lot of soft power, which can be used to persuade others that, uh, and, you know, you also need to be ready to be persuaded, but to persuade others that, yes, 
for example, controlling emissions, carbon emissions is in everybody's interest and probably everybody needs to sign up for it to make anybody's government accept it or political um, understanding. Same with trade and the same with cyber espionage and many other, same with nuclear weapons. And so I think it's very important that that, uh, the major political players in the world seek to understand their counterparts and also to try to work with them to a cooperative solution, not by agreeing to everything, but by finding a way that is uh, mutually advantageous. And often that is possible. Obviously, there's the big question between China and the United States, the rising power uh, relations with the existing power. That's a complicated and difficult time. But to start tearing up the norms at this time is particularly concerning, I think. And you asked, well, how long will they, will it last? I don't know. I think it depends a little bit how long uh, President Trump is in office and also how determined a shift is made afterwards and also what happens in the rest of the world. And look at the UK, which is in political chaos, quite frankly, now with Brexit I don't know how they get out of that. France, um, President Emmanuel Macron is facing a lot of challenges. So the whole world is in a, a bit of turmoil at the political leadership level. And it's a time when strong and cooperative leadership from the United States could be particularly important. We're obviously not going to get it under President Trump. So the question is, will we get it following that? Caroline Atkinson, thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. Thank you, Jordan. I enjoyed it. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices podcast, and of course, the Seneca podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shine,